governments might like to think about what they want over the next couple of decades because this stuff is accelerating quickly and the block is a thing. The agricultural block is a thing, renovating, fixing up all the infrastructure, passing it on for profit. And if you get to a point where the production on a farm doesn't matter so much anymore, it's actually the land value and maybe even the environmental services, then that changes things massively in terms of farming and where the industry is going. So I think it's worth thinking about. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Gabrielle Chan, who is a political journalist who has raised her family on a mixed-use farm in New South Wales and is the author of Why You Should Give an F About Farming, released in late August and described by Charles Massey as everything a potential game-changing book should be. Welcome, Gabby. It's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you about your book. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a book that offers such depth and breadth of insight into current and future challenges for farmers and for everyone, really, who eats and cares about communities, landscapes and our futures, really, isn't it? So how are you and how's the farm and land where you live looking as we speak? It's looking amazing. We're getting rain every week right now. It's just a cracker season. So there's quite a few smiles around the district, which is kind of a weird situation when you you've got a pandemic and everyone's locked down. But so it's this duality, I guess, that we're living right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's so strange on so many fronts, isn't it? Gabby, you and your book have been featured on The Drum in The Australian, and you've also spoken about the book on numerous radio programs. And I, and many people I reckon, are really looking forward to reading and learning more from you in The Guardian, with whom I think you've recently taken on the role as rural, regional and remote editor. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We, we've got a very exciting new project funded by the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation and in conjunction with UTS Sydney, the university's graduate journalism program. And we're trying to reimagine rural coverage, basically, (laughs) a small task, trying to get local writers to write from the regions about the issues that are important to them and their communities. It's really really an incredible opportunity. A number of interviews you've done pick up on the need for all of us to reconnect with food and where it comes from. And the anecdote in your book about how you took on COVID sourdough baking, like so many people have, and found yourself buying German milled flour from your local health food store, all the while having a silo of wheat at home on the farm that you possibly could have milled. It's a lovely vignette and it speaks to a lot of what you discuss in your book. Your book addresses big picture, very now questions and reasons why we should all give a toss about farming and the sorts of economic, environmental and social impacts and trade-offs that we need to consider and have much more of a national discussion about along with the need for more linked up policies and uh, priorities. You refer to the twin peak existential crises of bushfires and COVID that have really brought food, farming and supply chain diversity and questions about environmental and economic resilience and risk to the fore. So rather than ask you bluntly why we should give (laughs) about farming, can you lead us in or perhaps elaborate what drove you to write this book? Why now? And tell us more about what you describe as the thesis of your book, that it's driven by concerns about the black hole in the food and farming policy space. So this book, I guess, came out of the journey of my work over the last couple of years. So I I was primarily a political reporter and I was reporting for The Guardian in rural and regional areas on policies and also in the press gallery. And I start, was starting to see fractures in the debates over things like land, climate change, food production, 
the the imbalance between business relationships between big duopoly supermarkets and smaller to medium farmers. So all of these things were were taking effect. And my first book, Rusted Off, which came out in 2018, really looked at the the fracturing of rural communities in the way they voted. That is that they were becoming more unpredictable in the way they vote. And this happened uh, at a time when, you know, we saw Brexit occur and largely that was driven by regional people in the UK. We saw Donald Trump elected to the White House in 2016, largely off the back of a lot of regional centres whom Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. And I was sitting in this weird position where I was in the press gallery but also living in a small farming community in a town or near a town of 2,000 people. So those fractures led to Rusted Off, which was really an examination of why People were getting fed up with politics. And it had one chapter in there about agriculture and touched on things like climate change, regulation and land usage. Now, after that book came out, I started thinking about farming more deeply. And, you know, I make it clear in the book I'm not really involved in the farm in the sense I don't work day to day on the farm. I work as a a working journalist. But increasingly the issues that were impinging on political debates both locally, nationally and globally are actually issues that farming is highly exposed to. So they were they are the existential challenges for the world. They are climate change, they are soil loss, they are water loss, water shortage, zoonotic diseases, pandemics that maybe come out of wet markets, natural disasters, food distribution, food sovereignty as our global supply chains become more and more concentrated. And all of these things impinge on farming. And so I thought I really need to have a look at this. And, of course, the danger of it was that it becomes such a broad topic. Like I just started with an idea of what, my, what, my, what the farm was going through But you pull the thread on a farm and it leads you to these kind of foundational philosophical questions about the way we want to arrange our societies. And I think that was the kind of light bulb moment for me. Yeah. And as you say, you pull pull on a thread and it unravels so much. And, And in many ways, it's such a big topic that no one tackles it. Early in your book, in in the chapter, The Big Picture, you say that essentially we must find a way to knit together the need to grow and supply food with how we manage landscape. Australia needs a national master plan for its land and food. We need to know how we are to protect our sacred places and unique species for their longevity and that of the environment and our rural communities. A food plan would be both local and global with short, stout chains into our local communities and regions and then longer freight lines that share our substantial production capacity with the world, but particularly with our near neighbours. Food, land and water plan is, you say, surely a no-brainer. So how are we going on those fronts? Patchy. It's patchy. We're seeing a couple of green shoots, but I think the issue for Australia is that here we are, this kind of white settler economy largely that created its economy of farming, particularly in the early years. And we think we've solved the food problem. We think we've solved the farming issues, the land management issues, but no one ever takes a fresh look at it because it's just so fundamental to our Australian mythos, you know, the, the, our idea of ourselves, our identity is tied up largely in farming and you see that when you know Sydney did the Olympics in 2000 where we had all these people riding out on horses with dryzer bones and cobras and cracking whips and that sort of thing it's kind of fundamental to us but the modern economy of course has moved on to to largely a services economy and so I guess the the thing that struck me is it required fresh eyes I think it's worth looking at again in the frame with climate change and all these massive disruptions that are hitting nations and the world and it, it just seemed to me that there was a capacity to pull together all this amazing work so we've had so many incredible reports done by really knowledgeable people. You know, you've had that reports like a National Outlook report that really looks at where Australia is going, whether we want, you know, an outlook or a slow decline future, 
We've got a really exceptional land care program that others in the world has have copied. We used to have a national food policy. We don't so much anymore now. We used to have a, a national climate change research facility organisation that drew together elements of lots of different ministry responsibilities to look at how all of these issues, you know, food production, landscape management, climate change, how they're all going to knit together. But we dumped it. Like we keep dumping these amazing organisations. Land and Water Australia was another one that was doing an incredible synthesising <coughs> work. But we, we've got ourselves into this political cycle where we just you know, each government coming in chucks out the legacy elements of the last government in a way that we never used to do before. Each government used to come in and largely build often on what the previous government had done, notwithstanding their kind of politically opposite approaches. But we can't do that anymore. We've sort of gutted that capacity for reform and for longer term thinking. And I think that's a massive issue in Australian democracy. Which speaks to small government and sort of neoliberal thinking that you let the market determine the policy. Like a market is just, I think I'm 55 and I, I grew up with this idea of deregulation right from the Hawke-Keating government. And, and I think in a lot of cases we've been sold apart on deregulation. And I'm not saying by any means that we need to go back to a protected economy. The deregulation reforms did some good things in terms of, you know, throwing back the curtains and really allowing more competition in. But in the process, that competition policy has actually led to less competition. You know, the structures that we threw out in that deregulation agenda were gobbled up. Australian Wheat Board is an example, were gobbled up by bigger global corporations. And So we have this weird situation where we think of, say, a corporation as the same as a small business. We think of the Coles or Woolies being one entity equal to one entity that is a small farmer who's negotiating with that supermarket. This is just, you know, this isn't a deregulated economy. It's a re-regulated economy in my view. And it's time, we've done this 30 or 40-year experiment, it's time to look at it again and just do some analysis around is it working, what's working, what's not. Let's look at it again. Be a bit more strategic. Just in terms of what you said about policy processes, I mean, Good policy, as you say, takes t- takes years to develop and you have to hand it on and hand on the corporate memory and respect the researchers, the farmers, the bureaucrats who have the knowledge and, and carry it forward. I, I, I was involved a little bit with, we did have, a, as you say, we did have a national food policy under the Rudd-Gillard government. Quite a lot of work went on to develop a national food policy with huge consultation and submissions and all the rest. And it just got completely thrown out. And now we have the UN Food Systems Summit process coming up, which is quite contentious in and interesting and watch this space, but that might end up being quite tricky for Australian agriculture too. So so all very timely discussion. You also talk about higgledy-piggledy buckets of money and announcements, but no national integrated plan or policy. And you've, you've spoken about that, but it's kind of interesting just to flag some of them because in and of their own, they're really valuable, but how do we join the dots a bit better? So things like the uh, Future Drought Fund, we've got CSIRO's recently announced its its new big missions, including the drought mission. We've got a national water grid and new national soils policy and so forth, but they're all pretty disconnected, aren't they? And you have to you have to sort of wonder why. Yeah, the Dr. Paul Barnes at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute had an idea of maybe you could connect them all through the deputy secretaries, which I think is an interesting idea because often you get these kind of committees and you pull people out of various ministries. There's so much knowledge in the system, but we're not harnessing it properly. And I think that that needs to be done better. And our politicians, our politicians actually need to listen to those committees and those people, not just create another layer or commission another inquiry. That's right. There's recommendations everywhere that uh, have just been put in bottom drawers. Yeah. In your chapter on politics, you say a complex policy space such as agriculture requires finesse, sophistication and nuance to reflect the complexity of issues and the diversity of voices, yet it is hampered by our ways of thinking. You say farming is a wholly owned subsidiary of conservative politics and conservative advocacy groups. And that conservative is not the problem here, 
but it's the lack of competition in the ideas department that is the problem and that it's the lack of contest of ideas is the reason that we don't have an integrated sustainable land, food and farming policy that anticipates the challenges of climate change, which is already here. We're already now struggling to adapt while we're still arguing about mitigation, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And that lack of contest of ideas, I think, is a real issue. You know, Labor has completely dropped the ball, really, on any policy contest. And I think that's not good for policy development. It's not good for democracy, particularly in rural and regional areas. And and so, you know, the governments and ministers who deal in the agricultural space are kind of let off the hook in a lot of ways. Not to say there's not some good things happening, which maybe we can talk about later. But yeah, it's a it's an issue that lack of, lack of competition is a big issue. And for farmers, you know, all these really big pressures around land use uh, conflict, if you like, whether it's over water or mining on and near productive lands and also sacred lands. There's sort of not even a resolution of the big land use conflicts that are going on around mining and farming. No, no. And we'll continue to see, I think, these these sorts of issues come onto the front pages every so often because of that lack of, of strategic planning about where we want where we want certain developments to go. And, you know, the standout for me was just, you know, allowing it a uh, mining company, Shenhua, to to be granted a licence on the Liverpool Plains, which is prime ag land. Thankfully, it's been overturned now. But, you know, that's like, I think it was 10 years, maybe more of people's lives just soaked up by this massive, what would you call it, a, a, a fight over, yeah, over, over what should happen there. Yeah. And, and farmers and big irrigators and a real coalition of interests in the Narrabri region, which is where I'm from, uh, you know, they've spent 10 years really having to put a lot of effort in and around the whole Pilliga gas field developments, which, uh, yeah, not great outcomes there. Um, would you like to talk about or unpack, you know, the, the contest of ideas a little bit more? I think in that chapter you talk about three strategic issues in particular that, you know, should be brought to the fore in terms of how we're currently thinking about food, agriculture, exports and supply chains and the length of them and the viability of them. You talk about uh, trade with China, agricultural labour supply. I'm certainly wondering who's picking all our fruit and veg at the moment during COVID um, and technology. Do you want to talk about those a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the China trade debate, I guess, that happened in 2020 after Australia, the Australian government called for an inquiry into the origin of it just it said a lot to me about you know how we how we think of China and you know I've got Chinese heritage my dad's Chinese Singaporean migrant and it always um, amuses is too light a word but it always disturbs me that we have these debates about China and and Asia generally in terms of you know what what can we get out of them? What can we, you know, how much money can we make out of them? We better be nice to them because we want to make a lot of money out of them. And I think that's what we saw in the in the in 2020 when the Chinese government decided unilaterally to cut off our or to to impose tariffs on various goods like barley to stop imports of Australian beef from certain abattoirs. I think there was a wine tariff and a few others. We see this kind of tit for tat and farmers are a very strategic constituency for the Conservative government and so that, you know, it's no no surprise that they chose tariffs on those goods. But I, th- I guess that the point I wanted to make is that we have to be really careful about these sorts of debates with China, not just in terms that won't hurt farmers, but in terms that won't hurt the Australian Chinese community who who often get sort of corralled wedged. and wedged. Not that their loyalty, well, their loyalty has been questioned, you know, in in various parliamentary committees by Senator Eric Abetz, Liberal Senator, and that's just crazy language. Like, you know, we, we exist in this globalised world and how, how the debate can stoop to those sorts of levels is is beyond me. On the on the ag labor question, I, I think the thing that surprised me most in my research was all countries are dealing with this now. So the shortage of ag labor, you know, if you go to Britain, they were getting workers out of Eastern Europe 
you go to Europe, they're getting workers out of various Asian countries or or Eastern Europe. Even if you go to China, they're getting workers not from their regions. They're, they need people to come in and do a lot of their ag labour. So there's something I haven't worked out yet. I think there's a cultural story here in terms of, you know, how we think of working physical work these days. So I think there's that aspect. And, of course, this whole issue splits between skilled and unskilled labour, so there's two different things happening there. But I think there is a cultural piece that says, you know, this this work for what are, for, for a number of reasons people don't want to do it. And how we think of that, I think, is going to be really important into the future. I'm interested that the ag visa that David Littleproud has set up that allows workers to come in from Asian neighbouring countries to pick fruit, I'm interested in that idea only mostly because they are committing at this stage to allow those workers to have a path to permanent residency. There was a real dislocation, I think, in the the noughties under Peter Costello, the Liberal Treasurer, who was really adamant that Australia shouldn't have two tiers of citizenship, as in, you know, you're locked in here doing our dirty work, but you can't get residency. It was a real kind of shift. He didn't want to see that. We have we have shifted to that model like so many countries around the world. And I think there needs to be a lot of work done on how we get back to a situation that really is, you know, if, you, if you're coming in, you need to have access to possibly a transition to citizenship because you can't have these mobile kind of global workforces. Where, you know, they've all got to come from somewhere, right? So, you know, if we can't do that stuff, we, we really need to address it, right? Yeah. And so it speaks to a whole lot of our sort of settler society, post-colonial stuff that we just can't really deal with. So as you say, it's really quite a cultural yeah. project. Yeah, it? it is. And then the tech the tech story is really interesting because uh, so I spoke to Sarah Nollett at Authentic and she's got a podcast, mm-hmm. Ag Tech So What, which is really interesting. But she was, she was talking about the shift of, you know, what's required and it feeds into the ag labour story as well. You know, everyone's after the rope, the magic robot that's going to do everything for you on the farm, right, as as farmers get older and succession issues play out. But I think some of that promise of tech can appear sexy, but I don't think it's going to solve every problem in ag that by a long shot. Mm. And in terms of food security, like, you know, people... Have, you know, there's a whole spectrum of views, a whole spectrum of things that make up food security. But I really, I was really intrigued where you speak about secure, the direct linkage between food security and secure agricultural policy in terms of resilience, risk, and shocks, and just how dependent all of our productive capacity or much of it is on imported inputs, like a big shock to our fuel supplies or to our machinery supplies. Things could grind to a halt very quickly and it's that that sort of just highlights why you need this sort of risk resilience strategic I was really pleased to find Stephen Bartos the his mm. former senior public servant who did a report on resilience in our food supply chains in 2012-13 and you know he pointed out to me just the those holes that we never think about because we think we're in this kind of globally connected world and we think we've got it all sorted, as I said before. But, you know, when you think about what is required on this farm and any other farm, you know, you can't put a crop in right now without fuel. 90% of our fuel is imported. You can't get milk largely to market unless you have Tetra Pak, which is also imported as Stephen pointed out in that report you know we have tuna but we don't make the cans we have all of these things that we so we assume and you hear it from government all the time we're so food secure we export more than half of what we produce yeah all well and good but if I want to get a loaf of bread to you from the the tons of wheat in our silos how does that happen if you're dependent on the processes along the line? You know, this idea of 
interdependency, global interdependency, where, you know, we might grow the wheat, but we send the wheat to Indonesia to make into noodles and put in a packet and bring it back to put on our supermarket shelves. Whose product is that? Is that Indonesia's product or is that Australia's? Do we count that as food secure? We can't really until we have a process that does some of that at home. And I think the thing that was sort of both horrifying and exciting about the pandemic is to see this kind of live experiment in uh, food supply chains happening before our very eyes as our supermarket shelves emptied and the basics, you know, pretty much all the ingredients to make spaghetti bolognese disappeared off the shelf, you know, the <laughs> pasta, the, the mince, all of that stuff, not to mention the toilet paper. Yeah, local... A proliferation and conversation in lots of circles with involving short and more regional supply chains and food innovators and food hubs and so forth, which is really exciting, really. I was also, you know, I felt I was intrigued to read in your book where you also spoke about or quoted, you know, that someone else has said it that, you know, we're only nine meals away from revolution. Mm. I think anarchy, uh, Julian <laughs> Cribb, yeah, anarchy, and Julian Cribb also elaborates on that in his book War or yeah. Famine, Food or Famine, I think it's called. But it just reminded me, I, I used to work up in the top end a bit and I remember speaking with one of their Department of Primary Industries people during the millennium drought and Australia's grain supplies at the end of that drought, our grain supplies were down to three weeks uh, stock. Oh, we were importing <laughs> wheat in the last drought and, uh, and yeah, people don't, yeah. you know, that you never hear about that stuff when, you know, when mm. the, when the mm. government comes out and talks about how much we produce. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's up and down. Like we do produce a lot, but, but it's not as straightforward as you think. No. And um, the Arab Spring in 2010-11, was it? I think was triggered by high commodity prices and Russia's refusal to sell or Ukraine's refusal to sell wheat. Started with an orange seller in a market. Yeah, Ooh. there you go. Who knew it was so important? <laughs> Your book describes and shares really appreciative insights into and about farming cultures and the variety of them from small family farmers to corporates and big family businesses or domestic businesses, as you say, and the increasing and leading role that women farmers are taking as well. You talk about why people farm, not for a whole lot of reasons, notwithstanding huge challenges and the many mixed demands on farmers to be productive, to care for country, to be price takers in really tough and deregulated conditions. A key theme or the, you know, key theme or, you know, lockers of those ideas that you're elaborate are, are about the intrinsic and other reasons for, for why farmers do what they do, why they love what they do, and ultimately do see themselves as stewards of country and of their farms. So many may often make uneconomic decisions, but for really good reasons. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I think the the thing that struck me just reading and researching the whole deregulation debate was you know this acceptance as we we talked about before of the of the market as the natural system and that we are you know homo economicus that that idea from first year uni economics that basically says we all act like rational little economic units and and we always make decisions in our self interest but it, what it does is it clouds the impact of identity, I think, in in humans. And identity is so important to humans. I, I experienced it when I left work for a while to, to look after kids. But, you know, and you can see it with succession planning around farming all the time. You know, the, 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 the older man usually, as the farmer, retires to town when the kids take over and loses the sense of purpose. And I think that identity point is really key to farming culture. And I guess the best example that I saw, uh, that I heard about was from Chris Olzak at Aether Water Consultancy. And he talks about how the water markets, our very laissez-faire water markets, were kind of running on this model of, you know, this is the cost of production for my dairy farm and if the water rises above that cost of production, say I can pay $150 a meg for water and still still make a bit of money, if it rises above that, well, I will sell all my water. You know, the point he makes is sometimes people do farm for other reasons. They might want to maintain their herd or they might want to maintain their mix of 
crops or they might want to think about a longer-term issue of ground cover or whatever it is that's important to them as a farmer and in their farming business. And so we can't make these assumptions about the way that markets operate. And I think that I call it farmer economicus, you know, that that deregulation has assumed that farmers are these little farmer economicus units that are going around and will always make these decisions for certain reasons. It just doesn't happen like that. Like we're all incredibly complex and different things matter to us. And so we can't make this assumption that this is how the, I guess, farming will play out. And what I'm calling for in the book is just a kind of greater understanding of that cultural identity piece in order to work out how we want to send signals in the future. Because at the moment, the only signals that farmers get are economic signals. And that economic signal is you've got to produce more with less, and that's the way you get a pay rise. More wheat in the in the bin gives you a pay rise. There's no other signals that come to us in terms of farming. It's There's no signals about environment. There's regulations, but there's no economic signals. And I think that's the missing piece when we think about national landscape management. And big opportunities and things happening there, which we'll oh, talk massive. about a bit later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And not every farmer wants to farm fence to fence, yes. do they? They, they? Many people want to preserve their landscape, their favourite trees and waterways for all sorts of reasons, partially economic, but also because they do see themselves as as stewards and carers passing on something to future generations. Yeah. So what are some of the big trends here in farming cultures and change within them? Within them? I mean, we know about an ageing farming population, but there's an, also an incredible amount of students taking up ag and sustainable ag degrees, particularly now that arts degrees have different hex arrangements. I, th- I think I was speaking to some academic a while ago and they said, I think it was in northern New South Wales, one of the universities had 65% more enrolments in ag this year. <laughs> yeah, it, apparently um, people tell me you can't get a place in ag, it's getting harder and harder. So that's really interesting and that's really heartening too, I think, for the industry and for the rural communities that rely on farming. The trends that I see, so there's that piece of the puzzle, those people coming into ag, there's, there's a rural land boom right now mm. and that's mm. partly seasonal but also because of the very bullish nature of corporate agriculture and larger family farms wanting to increase their scale. And the and and though we have seen, you know, Australia in early settlement period was was basically squatters. So we have seen big what we we would now term corporate farmers before. But I think the difference in this in this period now is that they're seeing longer term global food demand as a real opportunity and also farming land as a very safe place to park capital and investment Mm. and and is as one corporate farmer said to me the gift that keeps giving you know this idea if you can make money when prices commodity prices are low then as inflation rises you're only going to go up you know it's it's people are incredibly enthusiastic so those trends I think are crashing into another big trend and that is this environmental services trend. The idea that massive companies, medium-sized companies and even smaller companies now are thinking about mitigating climate change. And we've seen Microsoft put out a billion dollar climate fund to try and mitigate all of their emissions since they began as a company. You imagine how many emissions that, that amounts to. And they are doing things like paying for environmental improvements. They've paid a couple of companies in Australia, really interesting. Wilmot Station has been paid for improving their soil carbon. Ironically, Rupert Murdoch's Cavern Station has also been paid for increasing its soil carbon. And those trends are really crashing into and driving not only the land price trend, but the bullishness in that younger sector coming into ag. And so that younger sector is kind of crossing over this. Finally, we're getting Mm. a fusion between the ideas, environmental ideas of landscape management and agricultural ideas of food production. And there's some... 
one of the interesting points that I would make out of that is succession, I think, is going to be incredibly a, a vexed issue out of that because, you know, we, if your asset's going up, all well and good, you can lend more, you can borrow more money. But, you know, when you think of kind of handing that farm down, that's a bloody big asset to have to, yeah. you know, square with all the siblings. So that's going to be an issue for family farming particularly, I think. And, and some of those products or those, you know, contracts involving locking up carbon or getting more carbon into soil, does that involve locking up the type of activity that can be done on that acreage? No, well. And for, how, and for how long? Or is it more fluid? Soil than carbon is a very vexed issue in the farming, in the yeah. farming okay. space yeah. right now. So you've got that that sort of example of Microsoft on the one hand that pricked up all these farmers' ears and said, oh, I could, I could, I could get a different revenue stream, which is a sort of smart way to think of it. But on the other hand, you've got soil scientists like and and ag scientists like Richard Eckhart down at Melbourne University are saying, hang on, hang on, just just, you know, hold your horses on this stuff. It's very hard to have a sort of totally upward trajectory on soil carbon. It's very seasonal. Think about improving your soil carbon to increase your production and what you get off the land rather than just as a payment. Because I think Australian Farm Institute did a podcast recently that had a really good discussion about this. And the point that was made there is you may be paid 15 bucks a hectare for increasing your soil carbon, but increasing that soil carbon might also lead to 150 bucks a hectare a hectare in increased production just by doing what you do, growing food or, or growing fibre. So um, yeah. don't get caught up too much in the, you know, money money for jam scenario. Just really try to balance it out. And these contracts, you know, often are for long periods. And so you're actually putting, yeah. you know, you're actually locking things up for quite some time that may have impacts down the down the track yeah. and this space is so dynamic it's moving so quickly we we could land in a completely different place in five years time let alone 10 or 20 years time that you have to sign a contract for. Mm. and yeah an amazing hedging and commodity trading in it that might actually take away sovereignty is that a risk uh well sovereignty is an interesting one in this space because you trade those those mitigation that mitigation or the soil carbon it goes out of the country so it comes off the country's balance and it comes off your farm so essentially you've got to double down really in getting to net zero as a farm business if you're also trading those those credits into the system so it's but you know I spoke to Ross Garner the economist like polymath he's really interested in agricultural economics among his many other hats that he wears and he's saying the problem with the market right now is that you know, it's like producing, it's like investing a lot to produce, say, wool or or weed and saying, I want you to invest all this money. We may pay you half the world price for it if you get paid at all. And, and that's yeah. essentially what's happening. Now, the, the, the thing to say about that is the ACCU, which is the carbon credit system in Australia, is very robust in terms of that it's as a system compared with some of the systems overseas, but it pays mm -hmm. a whole lot less. <laughs> so all the smart guys and girls on this stuff tell me, you know, go in with your eyes wide open. And it depends on water, doesn't it? Yeah, do well, yeah. Soil organic carbon, you know, it's mm -hmm. a big mm -hmm. factor. And if you head into a roaring drought, some of the, some of the farms that farmers I've spoken to have said, you know, they they were pleasantly surprised that their soil carbon they were working on plateaued in that it didn't go down in a roaring drought. But yeah, the trajectory isn't all like it would be this year, where we've had really good rains in most of the eastern states. Mm, fascinating. In your chapter on the middle and the chapter on corporatization, you've touched on quite a few of the issues already. You describe what may what may be at stake in terms of hollowing out of the diversity and the complexity of our farming communities and regions and the incredible surge in rural land prices and sort of almost speculation that you've also just touched on. So from where you sit now, do, do you think we are heading toward 800 corporate or mega farms at the expense of some 80,000 plus small to medium farmers or do you think it's just going to go in a cycle? I think the, 
decline in the number of businesses will continue. Whether it gets to 800 or not is another matter. But I wanted to underline that because I think the the decline will continue. Like we used to have 22, I think there were 200,000 in the 50s farm businesses where 80,000 something, depending on whose figures you use right now. And so that decline will continue because we do need, you know, economies of scale is a thing. So all the ag experts tell me that, you know, you will get improved productivity with scale. But is productivity the only measure? that we want to measure by because are we are we trading off some other measures like environmental outcomes this sort of thing i guess the thing that worries me about again this is the deregulation agenda is that this competition policy has is leading to less competition and a lot of our systems that govern things like water and things like markets requires resources and it requires expertise and small to mediums obviously have less resources to put to that. So you have to be a really, really sharp operator to win the day over, you know, the big farm down the road, whether that's a massive family operation or a massive corporate operation. And I'm not saying by any means we should chuck out all big families and big corporations at all. I'm saying that this will have a, a concrete impact on rural and regional communities because if you've got less owners of the land, you've got less people in the communities. And what I see every single time there's a drought is we get government ministers going out, putting on their akubra and say, we really want the mums and dads in farming. We really want to keep these communities going. We really want the netball coaches and the footy coaches and people who are taking part in communities. But if you get businesses at scale who have the capacity to take advantage of both the food production productivity and the environmental services income that's going to come from big global capital funds, then you're going to blow away any small to mids in the landscape. And maybe that's the way Australia wants to go. Like I'm 55. I don't think my kids are coming back, frankly. So I can work, walk off into the sunset in a pretty buoyant rural market. But if you if you want a sort of a more dynamic rural and regional landscape and, and people in that landscape, then you have to think about these contradictions because you're essentially sending two different messages. On the one hand, parliamentary committees are saying, how can we get more global corporate ag capital into this into this whole show and on the other side you're saying every drought we want the mums dads we want the small to mids it's sort of contradictory yeah and again going back to those intrinsic values of why people do special things and niche things it also speaks to something else you raise in your book about it will also impact on the city of scales of different types and sizes of farms and that has implications for the diversity of production what do we actually want to be producing and eating and is it all going to be export orientated in just a fairly monocultural way i think i think in your book you mentioned 75% of production sort of focuses on 12 plants and five animals. And we all know diverse landscapes and diverse diets are healthy and sustainable on a whole lot of fronts. So that's that's an interesting one. I mean, large large agricultural operators do tend to focus on a few big products. Yeah, they? well, that, that has been the message all the way through, that the, the diversity mm. isn't a thing, that, that if you can do something well, then, you know, concentrate on one or two things. And we saw this happen, you know, when the wool price dropped, for example, around here when I first came to the farm 25 years ago or something. You know, Ross Garner, again, did the wool report and and a lot of people went out of sheep. And the message was then cropping's the thing, you know, like you just got to go into big cropping and, and increase your scale and you only need, you know, a contractor or or a couple of machines, you need less people dealing with livestock. And now it's swinging back the other way where we're saying, you know, actually animals on landscape are quite handy because you can manage them in holistic ways and it can actually improve your environmental outcomes from straight cropping. So, you know, we go in these trends across these trends wash across the farming landscape and it's like turning the Titanic, you know, like you're, you're 10 years into the into the next trend and then there's you know scientists and 
consultants say, oh, you got to change again. You know, I think of the orange trees ripped out down along the Murray a couple of years ago and now everyone's going back into citrus and permanent plantings for nuts and things like that. And and yeah. it's not that easy, like a bit more strategy. I, w- I wouldn't mind a bit more sort of deep thinking on what we want. And Yeah, and different landscapes. Like if everyone thinks you can just even in the 21st century, just keep on doing the green revolution with a few more robots or something. Um, so you can grow crops anywhere at any time, notwithstanding drought. Of course, no one's thinking that simplistically. But a lot of Australia is really marginal mm. country. So it does need animals in the landscape. It needs people in the landscape to look after it and silviculture, bees, native foods, whatever it might be. There's, we need to embrace diversity for sustainability really as well. Yeah. There's a great quote at the end of your book where you talk about big corporate investors and capital markets. Sorry, it's a key theme of mine. You say that the problem is that so much of the big movement in corporate farming right now is akin to renovation shows like The Block. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's a land speculation grab at the moment, isn't it? And it's all about capital gain rather than sustainable production or long-term landscape management as the main game. Your book, Necessarity, is something of a slice in time. Like you wrote it, it's very punchy and of the moment and so important for that. And I was really fascinated to read that Gina Reinhardt has put her beef properties in the top end on the market in your book. And and since publication, Macquarie Bank has actually sold a swathe of its rural investments. Would you like to comment on either of those big transactions? Oh, look, this or, or, or not. <laughs> no, this is yeah. so interesting to me because one of the mm, farmers mm. I interviewed in the book, Brad Jones, he's a West Australian farmer, quite a big sort of family farmer. And he was talking about you know, the the march of corporate ag across WA where the prices were mm-hmm. were pretty, well, they were underpriced for the global market, as is the rest of Australia pretty much. And Australia's big advantage, I think, for those sorts of operations is we have scale. We have massive scale. You go to Europe, the farms are tiny. You know, I think it's 200 acres, mm-hmm. the average farm in the UK. So we've got scale. Uh, and we've got a pretty deregulated, in inverted commas, market. But Brad, in our interview, said something like, you know, this is kind of a balance and we have to, it would also be a worry if there was a big sort of movement out by the corporates because it would leave a bit of a hole. And, you know, when I came back to him a couple of months later, Macquarie had put Lawson Ag on the market for sale. And, you know, that their website says Lawson's Grains we are in it for the long haul. We are environmental and community custodians. You know, there is this idea that you can you can do this stuff the same way as a family farm, a family legacy farm, say. And then suddenly it's on the market after 10 years because I think the the spokesperson said that the the investment vehicle that it was tied to had come to an end, right? And so it was time to sell up. And you know, they had spent the last decade aggregating all of these larger farms, putting it into one one entity. And then, you know, who do they sell it to? Well, they've got to sell it to another corporate farm. No one's going to buy 500 million, 600. I think the price speculation was 550 million. That's not going to go back to family or community. That is going to go to another corporate. And sure enough, New Forests, I think it's called, from Canada, bought that place. And they're looking at surprise, surprise, environmental sustainability services because they do forestry in in Canada. So these trends I don't think are going away. You know, there is some speculation, oh, well, maybe they'll all lose interest again. I don't think that's going to happen. I think global food demand, I think population projections for the world are going to 10 billion by 2050 or so, according to the UN, and this is here to stay. So maybe governments might like to think about what they want over the next couple of decades because this stuff is accelerating quickly and the block is a thing. The agricultural block is a thing. Renovating, increasingly they'll be taking environmental services payments, fixing up all the infrastructure, passing it on for profit. And if you get to a point where the production on a farm, that is what the farm produces, doesn't matter so much anymore, it's actually the land value and maybe even the environmental services, then that changes things massively in terms of farming and where the industry is going. So I think it's worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And COVID, as we know, has seen a massive surge in 
sort of smaller rural acreages and regional towns, real estate sort of having a super boom, which is which is great for regions. And it also adds, adds further layers of complexity and energy and new populations into those regions, which has to be a good thing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I, just in this Guardian project, I've been run over by the feedback from rural and regional areas about people worried about uh, lack of housing stocks. So that, yeah. that move to the regions is really causing a squeeze on, on rental and, and housing supply generally. But yeah, that will change again. And that will change not only the, those communities, it'll change the possibly the political outcomes in those communities as you get more diverse views in those areas. So I think that's a really interesting trend to watch too. Yeah, a lot of younger people mm. going there too. Very interesting. So how do we make sustainable production or long-term landscape management more of the main game? Is it going to be through those big markets or is it going to be a whole sort of variegated picture? David Littleproud, the Agriculture Minister, has been trying to develop a carbon plus biodiversity pilot, which tiptoes into the idea of paying farmers for environmental services to improve habitat and biodiversity. So there's that little nugget there that I think is is worth watching, particularly in the lead up to the next election. Is that um, one and the same as the sort of what the department and the NFF are collaborating on to look at developing a biodiversity certification scheme yes, because yes. the freight train's coming absolutely, out of Australian Absolutely, <laughs> and I think a part of that yeah. will also be a platform to trade. So one of the things that I've been puzzling over is how, you know, how the average farmer gets in contact with the average Microsoft or the average whatever company wants to pay, like what the conduit is to create that partnership in order to sign those agreements and get that separate income stream. So that I think is interesting. But, you know, I think it needs a broader push from federal governments, particularly with buy-in from the states. And we've seen the national cabinet model, which could be really useful in terms of developing these sorts of policies. But, you know, that idea that so many of our, our federal, even federal departments have some element of agriculture or farming or land management in them, is bringing those expertise together and creating a national strategic plan as to how we're going to deal with this stuff. Because we're going to see an increase in, say, carbon sequestration programs, projects. So that might be, you know, massive tree planting on a large scale to mitigate someone's emissions or Renewable energy production is increasingly an issue in rural and regional communities, mm. and that is a contested space as well. You know, you see some projects that are really good ideas and some of them are the right idea in the wrong place, depending on how that natural landscape is formed. So, you know, on watersheds or alluvial plains or, you know, probably not the best place to put, you know, a whole lot of solar panels where it's going to flood, that sort of thing. So we're seeing this kind of, it's almost like the the old white shoe brigade come in and they're all excited about all this stuff. You know, we've got it, we're going to do this and we're going to save the environment. It's just like, hang on, guys, just let's get some strategy around this and work out what we want in those communities. Get get get, get some more strategic landmaps. Exactly, right? That are, that, are, that are fit for the 21st century. So that was, that's that backyard <laughs> plan I talked about, you know, just that writ large, the idea in your backyard, you, you know where your veggie garden's going, you know where your compost heap's going, you know where you bring your guests that, a nice place to sit and have lunch in the sun. All of these things really need to happen for for the nation. So we know we're not fighting over where we're putting housing or where we're putting mining. Shall we put mining in the middle of a prime agricultural space? Probably not, you know, of all the places in Australia. That sort of vibe is, yeah. I think really important. Turning to good, more good, more good news or better news <laughs> or easier good news. <laughs> what other great ideas would you like to see grow to help draw different types of farmers, consumers, and environmentalists together to better enable sustainable, you know, production systems, collaborations to support. I suppose to support a greater range and healthiness of more diverse supply chains and supply scales, if you like. There's your love. There's the lovely examples in your chapter on disruption that 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 featured in the Australian, and that was really really beautiful. I love the way it touched on rural food deserts. <laughs> Are there other really good news 
development scales that that you've come across that you'd like to talk about? Well, so there are two parts to this. So one of them is the government piece, which we've just talked about, that kind of national strategy. And I think in the community piece, like social media has allowed this kind of connection between interested eaters and interested farmers. And that's what I'm seeing, you know, that that story about Josh Collings and his mates getting together down in Corryong after the bushfires to set up Acres and Acres, I think is a really interesting project. And that's drawn a lot of people in, connected farmers who are who are providing a bit of land or and and people you know, who who love to garden and grow food. It's it's a real almost a kind of, well, it's a food project because it provides really good healthy food. It brings community together. It's a therapy project to get over the bushfires and talk about stuff that's happening in your life. So there's that aspect. The other thing I'm seeing locally is just more and more people connecting over that social those social media platforms about, you know, I want to I want to buy my my meat or my bread closer by and I think that's a really interesting development. Small World Bakery in, in South Australia I went to visit for the research and they they try out all these different varieties of wheat, a lot of old varieties, and then bake it into bread. And, you know, that they said that they were just absolutely run over during the COVID pandemic with people who were thinking, oh, holy hell. Maybe if I can't get my bread from the big chain supermarket, I can get it locally. And I think those connections are really interesting. You know, all of these towns, I, I live in a town of 2,000 people. It's, there's a mill here. There was a mill here where we, everyone used to deliver their wheat, but they're not used anymore because of the supply chains got more and more concentrated. I would hope to see more of those kind of smaller scale, smaller and regional scale projects come to fruition mm. to provide a bit of resilience in the system so that, you know, you're not waiting for products to come from the other side of the world, that you actually are putting a bit of money back into the local community. And that's happening in lots of places oh. and in lots of ways, you know, you know, through food hubs and things like Food Connect out of Brisbane and Victoria just has such an amazing peri-urban and urban sort of social innovation space <laughs> around food systems. And I'm thinking particularly of the Open Food Network, some of those platforms where consumers and producers can connect and transact almost by mail or by particular pickup points. And during COVID, apparently eggs just went, you know, e- eggs, sale of eggs through those sorts of platforms were just incredible because people didn't want to go into to busy shopping centres and so on and so forth and the provenance of their food was so important. So there's a lot going on actually, which is just all to say part of the big picture that wouldn't it be nice to join the dots on. I yeah, the, the other thing I would mention there is food price because mm. food, I, I thought a lot about food price and, and this, this is a kind of really vexed issue. So um, the feedback I always get when we talk about, you know, the more connected local and regional food hubs is also always, you know, some people can't afford that, you know, they need to have the $2 loaf of bread from the big chain supermarket. And that $2 loaf, even though it doesn't include the cost of production largely and the environment, particularly the environmental cost of production, we always get down to this idea of food price and who can afford the artisan loaf. Small, small World Bakery has the approachable loaf. I really like that idea, which is a cheaper <laughs> loaf but still, you know, with as much, you know, milled out of local local grain. But, you know, I think the food price issue is a big one when we think about how you want to make food chains resilient and also who can afford them. Because if you're in a rural food desert, you know, employment opportunities aren't great and it can be very tough. That's a bit of a dual-edged sword there, isn't it? Because aren't milk and bread almost the lost leaders to get yes, people into supermarkets? Yes. In one of your interviews, you spoke about your approach to the book, that you were really keen to explore and to share parts of the story of Australia's food culture and traditions, Indigenous and other, to engage and enable eaters, everyday eaters, people, to, I suppose, embrace the role or just realise their their role as the arbiters of where and how food is grown and how land is cared for. And obviously price, as you've just said, is a complex factor into that picture. Your book explores the importance of food tribes, the incredible consumer niche and other trends that involve food healthiness and provenance, especially among young people for identity and more. And you draw on Michael Simon's work from 1982, I think it is, One Continuous Picnic, that amongst other things says that in Australia, our land missed that fertile period of settled agriculture and cooking. There has never been the agrarian interplay between society 
society and soil that created the great tradition of cuisines as we know them. Almost no food has been grown by the person who eats it. Almost no food has been preserved in the home. And indeed, very little preparation is now done by the family cook. This is the uncultivated continent. Our history is without peasants. (laughs) I'm looking forward to reading the book, I must say. But a lot has changed. A lot has and has not changed on that front. We've got all sorts of, as you say, artisanal producers, homesteaders, future steaders, COVID, we're all doing more cooking than we probably want to. (laughs) But would you like to comment on that or do you think it still rings true or I not? Think it, I think it does ring true in the fact that I, I didn't realise how we jumped that we jumped that kind of peasant culture. And Michael's book is amazing yeah, yeah. in that it goes into, you know, a particular group in that early period of settlement. And they, I think they were called the dungarees because they were, you know, dressed in dungarees like peasant farmers and, and how much the colony leadership stomped on them as a sort of not something to encourage, that they wanted industrial-sized production because they wanted export. They wanted mass, they wanted bulk to send to the mother. Well, beef back back to the motherland. to the motherland. Mm. So, you know, that I think Simon's book is really interesting in that. And if you're a foodie as well, you'll be really interested because he goes through recipes and what people ate and all of that stuff. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. So I think we did we did skip that period and that remains true today. But I think there are parts that are reinvigorating. You know, I talked to some of those smaller and micro farmers in the book and that's pandemic has charged that. But you 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 do see people more interested in the whole artisan movement to sort of move out of the office and to use your hands more. I think there's a kind of, there's a little nucleus of interesting stuff happening there. It's not going to be everyone and it's a hard living, but I think there are green shoots in that. But largely farming production will remain the purview of large farmers Mm -hmm. and increasingly so. Yeah, in terms of yeah. proportion. Yeah, so interesting, isn't it? Because there's this huge proliferation of young farmers connect and 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 I see a lot of youth movements doing an incredible amount, but it, in terms of scale and on the landscape, perhaps it's overwhelmed, as you say, by the larger picture. Gabby, there are so many great ideas, different voices and themes in your book, and I know we've really only touched on a few and time's moving on. <laughs> Do you have any further comments or, or reflections, particularly now that the book is out and being received? Would you Would you like to tell us about how it's being received? Uh, it's, it appears to have been received really well. I mean, it, it's got very good write-ups and, and there seems to be a lot of interest in it. I think it, just in the, in the process of doing it, I, when I originally conceived it, I would have been out a lot more than I have ended up being because yeah. of the pandemic and I think that changed mm. the book. I was surprised at how much I ended up in philosophical territory, which maybe I always would have ended up in. And I don't know if that was because I was locked down more, but it really surprised me how fundamental food production and and feeding people is to the way we organize society and I and I so I'm interested to hear more feedback because you know maybe that's too much for some people you know the economics in it and I'm not an economist I didn't even do economics at uni so but I was surprised at how much it turned into the story of deregulation and what we want to encourage in policy terms. And so I'm interested to hear how people think of that because largely farmers are sort of doing what they do and they just accept the system. They just say, well, that's the system we're working with. And in fact, the farmer, my other half in the book, when I (laughs) told him I was going to start do a book on farming, what's so interesting about farming? It's just like it is what it is. There's nothing to see here. Whereas I think it's endlessly fascinating because the bottom line is we get to choose the rules, the policies that we live and work by. Nothing is set in stone. The the deregulated system is not set in stone. We get to make laws and regulations or governments do and so we get to have a say, and I think I think it's worth looking at again, again, so that people have a say and think, oh, is this the way we want to go? So this old dollar milk is that a really good idea? Or you know, maybe people decide it is, but 
why not have a look at it again? And nothing is set in stone. I look at COVID, credible expenditures, and, and also the real proliferation of really positive debates about, oh, this is a time to reset, recharge, reorient, you know, pivot. Hopefully we won't lose some of the good things out of those discussions. Thanks very much for speaking with me today, Gabby. It's been such a pleasure. I thought it would be really nice to wrap up with a bit of a quote from your book. Would you like to... Uh, Read Absolutely. <laughs> this is from the last chapter and it's just two pars. The people managing land, Indigenous or non, are the ultimate ground truthers. They need to be trusted and they need to trust those imposing the rules. That means we need a political feedback loop that functions better than it currently does. Governments need to listen and trust land managers and land managers need to have faith in governments. That requires better feedback machinery. But we are entering a new paradigm that acknowledges that farmers and food production exists within a landscape. That means farmers, eaters and governments have to change their mindset. The new model must combine verifiable land stewardship with growing healthier better quality food. We have to look after land as if our lives depend on it because they do. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Gabrielle Chan about her latest book, Why You Should Get an F About Farming. It's a fabulous book and it's available from all good bookstores and online booksellers. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.